the transition uh, from the internal combustion engine to electric propulsion is in fact underway. Irreversible seeds have been set to make this happen. Welcome to Environmental Insights, a podcast from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. In this series, I have the pleasure of engaging in conversations with a truly stellar group of men and women with tremendous expertise in environmental economics and policy, some of whom have combined meaningful work in the academic world with very significant service in the public sector. And my guest today, personifies that combination in ideal ways. John Graham is Dean Emeritus and still a professor at the Paul O'Neill School of Public and Environmental Affairs at Indiana University. Previous to that, he was Dean of the Party Rand Graduate School in Santa Monica, California. And before that, he served in the George W. Bush administration as the administrator of the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, known as OIRA, in the U.S. Office of Management and Budget. And prior to that, he was my colleague at Harvard. He was a professor at the Harvard School of Public Health in Boston, where he founded the Harvard Center for Risk Analysis. John, welcome to Environmental Insights. I'm delighted to be here with you, Rob. So I'm very interested, and I know our listeners are going to be interested to hear your impressions about contemporaneous environmental and health policy in various administrations, including perhaps in the recent Trump years and now what to expect in the new Biden years. But before we talk about any of that, um, let's go back to how you came to be where you are and where you've been. And, And I do mean go way back. Where did you grow up? Uh, born and raised in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And did that mean that's where you went to primary school and high school? Yes, uh, both elementary school and high school. And then college was where? And that was at Wake Forest University in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. I went down there hoping to be a golfer, and I met real golfers and ended up on the debate team. But you're still a pretty serious golfer, as I recall. Oh, yes. I, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm addicted. And now what did you study at Wake Forest? I studied politics and economics, but truth be told, I spent 80% of my time on the, on the debate circuit. So I was one of the, uh, the addicted debaters at Wake. I see. And that's a talent you've maintained. Now, from there you went on. Did you go immediately to Duke for a master's degree? Or? Yeah, I was actually in the, uh, in the initial class of two-year MPP students at oh, Duke University. Wow. Fantastic. Yep. And and now from there, did you go directly to Carnegie Mellon, or was there some years nope. in between? Directly to Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh for the Ph.D. in public affairs. It's a wonderful degree, a great program. And your dissertation was on what? It was on automobile airbag technology, costs and benefits. And who was your who was on your dissertation committee? Uh, Granger Morgan uh, uh-huh. is a professor there, and yes. uh, Steve Garber, and a man named Alfred Bloomstein. So, and then you graduated there, and what was your first job out of school? I was a postdoctoral fellow at the Harvard School of Public Health in a program called uh, Interdisciplinary Programs in Health. A man hmm. named Professor Don Hornig ran it. He's a chemist 
and I was mixed together with all sorts of environmental scientists and attorneys and policy people. Uh, and that was my first year in Boston. And after not very long, you became an assistant professor in the school, right? Correct. Yeah, 1985, to, I was a faculty member until I joined the Bush administration in 2001. You know, there's so much we could talk about, but first I'd really like to turn to your time running OIRA in the Bush 43 administration, where I believe your tenure exceeded that of anyone else who's held that position. Is that correct? Well, I don't know the exact facts, but I was there a good five years, which is a, which is a, a long tenure for a, a political appointee. It certainly is. Now, can you share with us um, at least one of the high points and maybe also one of the low points of your time uh, directing OIRA? Well, I would say one of the high points was we were working on a uh, to revitalize the uh, corporate average fuel economy program, which sets the fuel economy standards for cars and light trucks. And we thought it we had everybody in the White House on board with our program. And then the vice president's office indicated that they had objections to the program. So we had to actually go into the uh, Oval Office and make our case to President Bush. And uh, when I did so, it was apparent that the, pre the president and the vice president were not uh, totally on the same page on this issue. But we were able to persuade the president to move forward, and we did so. And now it's a, a very important very important part of the program that the federal government has on fuel economy and on carbon dioxide control. Now, if that's one of the high points, what, what, what would be a low point, you might recall, of your time at OIRA? Well, that's a good question. I remember a low point being that we were, we were acquired by Congress to develop a study of, um, of the impact of immigration law on people with limited English proficiency. Mm -hmm. uh, and we we made a case in this draft report that if you could get more people uh, to be literate in English, to put more emphasis on government resources, making sure that people were uh, proficient in English early on when they entered the country, including people who, who were working in, and in the country illegally, uh, that this would be good for the economy. It would good for, be good for the, these people and their families themselves. But the people in the White House felt that the that the report would be viewed as um, too paternalistic and would not mm -hmm. be would not be received positively by the Hispanic population. And it, President George W. Bush was a very, uh, I think he had a, a strong record with the Hispanic yes. uh, population, and he guarded that very closely. Mm -hmm. So we had to trust that, and the report ended up being kind of trimmed down eighty percent, and so forth and so on. And that was very that was very demoralizing to me and my staff who had worked on that report. Sure. Now, you went into the government directly from academia, from Harvard. As you think back now, is there anything you wish you had known uh, when you started the position well, that you I, didn't? I, yes, that's a great question. I, I would say, first of all, that in hindsight, I wish I had, a, had done a stint on Capitol Hill as a staff member for a couple of years and learned the way of Washington. Because when I went to Washington, I did not have a uh, significant experience. And it took me a good 18 months to two years really to learn the job and, and to understand how to be effective in the administration. And I had not served at the campaign either. So I didn't have any, mm -hmm. I didn't have a network of friends and colleagues uh, in the administration who I had been in the campaign with either. 
Did you have a chief of staff that could be helpful in those ways or other Yes, people? I had a wonderful uh, guy named Paul Noe. He, he was mm-hmm. uh, from the Senate, mm-hmm. and he was a staff member there for Senator Fred Thompson uh, from Tennessee, who, had, who was critical in my confirmation process. And then I had a second staffer. Uh, Ronnie Stidvent, who was from Austin, Texas, and she had worked in the governor's mansion with uh, with uh, gov- then Governor uh, George W. Bush. When I think back about your time at OIRA, one of the things that stands out in my mind that I've taught in my class actually each year are the set of important changes, reforms that were put in place for regulatory impact analyses. I believe in September of 2003, if I have my timing correct. Do you remember that? Yes, that's OMB Circular A4, a very obscure little technical document. Not so obscure to you and me. No, it's a very important document for the agencies, the the uh, cost-benefit analysts in the agencies. This is a document that's important in their discussions with OMB. Now, one of the ways in which there were modifications was to begin that to add a 3% discount rate to the previous 7% discount rate for intragenerational policies and then to suggest that perhaps an even lower one might be used for intergenerational uh, assessments. Um, can you say something about what the thinking was that led to that? Well, you have to keep things in mind here in terms of the timing and the thinking uh, within the economics community on the discount rate. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there was a strong group of people who favored 7% on the grounds that it represented kind of the... Uh, the interest rate on private capital, if you look mm-hmm. at over a long period of time, then there was then there were people interested in a rate that was that was representing sort of time preference as reflected in treas- long-term treasury. It's low-risk treasury right. uh, bonds, uh, but then there was also mm-hmm. a growing concern that for 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 long-term intergenerational problems, that maybe the the neither of these dis- two discount rates was appropriate. But the thinking at the time was not really all that crystal. And the, and the economics mm-hmm. community, quite frankly, they were in disagreement internally at the time we developed that guidance. So we had lots of views. So the way, the way we looked at it, we, maybe for purposes of sensitivity analysis, you should include a lower rate just so the decision makers understood it. But at the time, economics was not speaking with a single voice. Right. You, di- you didn't replace the 7% discount rate with no. the 3%. You added it so that right, both right. would be used. Right? So, yeah. and, and if there was a, a lower than 3 then the analysis would have been done with three rates. Right. Right. Now, th- that all turns out to be quite important in the context of subsequent climate change policies, in particular for estimating uh, what's known as the social cost of carbon. The Obama administration used your 3% discount rate. The Trump administration adopted the 7% discount rate, uh, Biden, in his first couple of weeks in office, went with an interim estimate, which again uses a 3% discount rate. He set up a one-year task force to reassess the social cost of carbon, and the indications are that they may adopt a 2% discount rate, which would actually double 
the current social cost of carbon from $51 to approximately $100 a ton. Had you anticipated anything like that at the time that you were making these reforms? No, I don't. I don't think. I think it's fair to say that we were not anticipating the social cost of carbon issue. And remember, this is early in the Bush administration, right? And we had actually just um, removed removed the uh, the United States from the uh, the Kyoto Protocol, which had been negotiated right. under the previous administration. So this was not like a an intentional way of foreshadowing it. And, and, and remember, there are lots of impacts that you can have on future generations that are unrelated to climate change. Uh, and even some of the conventional air pollutants have impacts on um, on young children and on uh, pregnant moms. Uh, and there are issues there about whether the, the same discount rate should apply. So we were we were viewing it in a more general context. Yeah, no, that's turned out to be very important. If you look at the Obama era clean power plan, which was later stayed by the Supreme Court while Obama was still uh, in office, if you look at the domestic benefits that they were estimating for the year 2030, 94% of the estimated economic benefits of the clean power plan were not due to reduced risk of climate change, were due to reduced emissions of small particulate matter, PM 2.5. Probably not a surprise to you. No, I had, and I had worked and collaborated with a number of the scientists at the Harvard School of Public Health uh, who are who were pioneers on the PM 2.5 issue. Right. In fact, I invited uh, several of them, including Professor Doug Dockery, to come brief the key people in the in the Bush White House on the uh, the latest science on PM 2.5 and health. And that would later become important in standards we did on control of diesel exhaust and control mm-hmm. of sulfur dioxide from coal-fired power plants. Now, another element of the reforms was so-called formal probability analysis, or what's often called Monte Carlo analysis. Can you say something about what the thinking was uh, for that? Yes. So we had, uh, at the time, it was very common for agencies to do sensitivity analysis, where they would take each kind of uncertain variable in the analysis and vary it over its plausible range, and then see what the results would be for the overall net benefit comparison of policy alternatives. But sometimes you had five or six variables that were uncertain and, and just moving one of them one at a time didn't necessarily give you a full picture of the overall uncertainty. And that's where we went with the idea of actually doing simulation of, uh, of uncertainty from all of the uncertain inputs. And, and in fact, that, kind, that type of analysis, Monte Carlo analysis is exactly what's been used for the estimates of the social cost of carbon, where I think they do, I think it's just 10,000 runs to generate the probability distribution that then they find, you know, various levels, the mean estimate, the 95% tile level, et cetera. So that's turned out to be very important on an ongoing basis in the government. Yes, and, and it, 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 unfortunately, it's not as widely used as we'd like to see it used. We had it, we had it started going at several agencies, and actually, the Department of Transportation was even more uh, aggressive about its use than than uh, EPA. But EPA was pretty good about it too. But then it kind of phased phased out during the Obama years, except as you say, for the social cost of carbon. Right. Now, now thinking back, you began your academic career at Harvard in 1983 during the Reagan administration. 
that was succeeded, I sh I'll say this for our younger listeners, by the Bush 41 administration that I was engaged with in terms of the Clean Air Act amendments in 1990, then the Clinton administration, then the Bush 43 administration, where you held this very important role at OIRA, then the Trump administration, and now the Biden administration. Um, there's a lot of change over those. And what I'm interested in is in terms of the attention of each of those to the use of rigorous risk analysis in regulatory affairs, how would you comment or even maybe rank, if you're willing to, how would you comment on that set of administrations? We've got Bush 41, Clinton, Bush 43, Trump, and now Biden. Well, I think the first thing you'd have to say is that the most important change that occurred in that whole period was in the very first of the administrations, and that was under Reagan. Mm -hmm. and, and the important change that was made was that a regulatory agency was not permitted to actually publish their proposed and final rules in the Federal Register without the approval of OMB. Mm -hmm. So that created the mechanism that allowed over the next several administrations the improvements in cost-benefit analysis and risk analysis to occur because OMB was ultimately the, the agent of uh, inducing a lot of that improvement. So I think you have to point really mm -hmm. to that as mm -hmm. the, the signature thing that happened in that entire history. Now, not all our listeners will be aware of what the process is. Can you sort of describe either by way of example or in general how it is that uh, an agency or uh, such as EPA uh, proposes a regulation, does an analysis, OMB reviews it, go back and forth. How, how does that all work? Well, in, 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 its, uh, in, in theory, the way it works is there are two opportunities for OMB and for all federal agencies to review the work of a sister federal agency. So if EPA is developing a regulation, the Department of Energy may have comments or the Department of Agriculture may have comments. And OMB was designated as the place to kind of referee all these comments and to submit them all back to the agency. And from the standpoint of the, of the regulatory agency, uh, OMB delivers what's called the, the dreaded passback. And that's all the comments from all these agencies that have to be fixed before the proposal can be published for comment or before a final rule can be actually issued and promulgated. So it's a very important part of the rulemaking process of the federal government. You've probably been in touch with some of your successors running OIRA. Can you comment on some of the uh, succeeding administrations uh, or the prior ones, Bush 41 and Clinton or, or the Trump administration? Well, there was a, there was there was a, a down period during the Reagan years where, uh, where there were there was a lot of uh, resistance to regulation coming from OMB mm -hmm. that went into got into crosshairs with key people in Congress, both the Senate and the House, uh, and there were threats to kind of zero out the budget for OIRA, mm -hmm. and and at that time the OIRA administrator was not even a Senate confirmed official. So it was merely a political appointee of the administration without a Senate confirmation. Oh, I didn't realize that. Oh, yes. So at the time, um, there was a, a compromise reached and they, 
they called for greater openness and transparency about how OIRA does its work, and they also created the Senate confirmation requirement for OIRA administrators. It turns out under under uh, Father Bush, Bush 43, there was uh, never a uh, OIRA administrator confirmed by the Senate. There was a very strong nominee from Vanderbilt University, a law professor who was named, but he was never actually confirmed. No, I didn't know that either. Yes, so it wasn't until the uh, Clinton administration that the, the the whole process settled down, became more professionalized. There was a very important um, uh, executive order issued by President Clinton that narrowed and focused the uh, the mission of OIRA. Uh, it kept the basic structure I described that was in the Reagan administration, uh, and uh, and, there, and there was a very successful administrator of OIRA, uh, Sally Katzen, through those periods. That was a yes. very sta- stabilizing period for OIRA, uh, and then. From then on, I think it's been very, it's been a very uh, well-respected office by both political parties. Yeah, I've had the pleasure of working with Sally closely as a fellow board member of uh, Resources for the Future, the Washington think tank, although she's just retired from the board. Although, as, as you know, Sally, and I know Sally, um, retirement is not something that's in her uh, basic lexicon, I think. No, she's a ball of energy. Then your successor during the Trump administration then was appointed to a very important federal uh, appellate court in Washington, right? Yes, she's on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. Yeah. Uh, and she took the seat that uh, was vacated when um, when the Supreme Court nomination was made. And his name is slipping me right now. He's a member of the court. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, so that was an extremely important uh, position in the early uh, Trump years. Now, I don't want you to uh, get away without talking about a a very important part of the Biden administration's announced infrastructure and climate policy. I can't actually call it proposed legislation because it's actually a a fact sheet or a set of Q&As, although the longest one I've ever seen for such a fact sheet. Um, And that is support for charging stations for electric vehicles across the United States. You've thought a great deal about EVs, and in fact, Edward Elgar has just published your latest book, I believe, uh, The Global Rise of the Modern Plug-in Electric Vehicle, Public Policy, Innovation, and Strategy, a very comprehensive, broad approach. How did you get into that? And then I want to know something about the, the key messages that come from that book. Well, I have had a long-standing interest in the auto industry. As we discussed, mm-hmm. I, I actually did my dissertation on automobile airbag technology. Uh, when I was working for George W. Bush, uh, we were very convinced that the electric vehicle was not a very cost-effective technology, and we resisted strongly California's efforts uh, to mandate uh, z- so-called zero-emission vehicles, and they really had in mind electric cars. Mm-hmm. But what what has happened is the spillover of lithium-ion battery technology from consumer applications to the auto industry is now creating enormous excitement and innovation in the auto sector, and that's the stimulation for the book. In the book, which again with the subtitle Public Policy, Innovation, and Strategy, that sounds like there's a lot of breath there and a lot of important messages. So what are some of the key takeaways? Well, one of the key takeaways is is that the transition uh, from the internal combustion engine to electric propulsion is in fact underway. Irreversible seeds have been set to make this happen. 
However, the pace of the translation is going to move at very different rates in different parts of the world. And a lot of this depends as much on politics as it does on markets. And, and, and what do you think about the Biden administration's approach, which is, as I understand it, is to uh, A, provide subsidies. This is what they're proposing anyway, providing uh, subsidies for a very large number, although not ultimately sufficient number of charging stations across the country, possibly, I think, looking also at rebates for the purchase of electric vehicles and also uh, talking about improvements in the electricity grid, which many people would say will be necessary for higher degrees of penetration of EVs. What, what do you think of that set of policies? Well, it tracks very closely the success that Norway as a country has had in promoting electric vehicles. And they're now at about 80% electric vehicle penetration of the new vehicle fleet. That compares to like 6% in China, 3% in the United States. Now, Europe has gone on a similar domain, and you've got Germany and the UK now are above 10% electric vehicle penetration. Mm -hmm. So this is one of these cases I find it fascinating where uh, – the industrial policy strategies, which many Western economists regard as in disrepute, mm -hmm. they are in fact the standard approach to making a big change in an industry like this. Uh, and I think that's what's going to have to happen. Now, the details about whether the Biden administration gets it right, it's far too early to judge that. Mm -hmm. and, and, and over what period of time did Norway go from zero to 80 uh, percent from vehicles? about from about 2010 to 2020? Uh, and most of the progress was 2015 on. That's a remarkably short period of time, isn't it? To achieve yeah. that. And what, one of the things they did is they taxed internal combustion engine vehicles. Uh -huh. which, as far as I uh, have heard, is not part of the Biden administration plan. It turns out at, the pur at purchase, you can save $5,000 by buying an electric car in Norway. No, the, the Biden plan is one that uh, involves, as they like to say, carrots, not sticks. <laughs> right. The yes. T word does not appear anywhere. In fact, something else, if you read, I don't know if you've had a chance to read the new nationally determined contribution of the United States under the Paris Agreement. It was just released last week at this uh, climate summit that took place. Um, the word or the concept of legislation uh, does not appear. As someone said to me, it, it would give the impression to a reader that didn't know otherwise that there was only one branch of government in the United States. Yes. Wow. That's interesting. Yeah. I think it's obvious though that they're going to need to get, they're going to need to have some congressional action to, uh, to supplement the regulatory approaches. Uh, and I think they have a good shot at getting some, um, some legislation that will be related to climate change if they can, um, you know, they only, I think they only need to pull together several Republicans. But, you know, it's very hard to make. You've had more experience than I have at that. And it's going to be fascinating to see how the politics works out. It's going to be challenging um, for sure in, in the Senate. And the regulatory approaches could face a much more difficult time now than they did in the Obama years, even the same regulation, because now – uh, there are the 245 federal judges appointed by Mr. Trump, plus the 6-3 majority uh, of conservatives in the Supreme Court, meaning I would think that there will be less deference uh, given to the agencies to interpret federal statutes under the uh, 
Chevron rule. What do you what do you think about that? Well, in my book, one of the comparisons I make is to how how durable science and technology policy are in China and in Japan yes. uh, and in Europe compared to the United States. We have a, a strong tendency in the United States to be ping-ponging from one administration to the next about, uh, you know, President George W. Bush was very interested in hydrogen. Uh, mm-hmm. President Obama was more interested in lithium-ion batteries. And it's very difficult to have a sustained uh, major transition of a sector like the auto industry uh, when you have a, that kind of political uh, instability uh, in approaches to policy. So we really, we really do need some durability in our policy toward the auto sector. That's, that's a very important point. And when I talk with uh, climate negotiators from other countries, uh, including uh, China, but also our European uh, allies, the word that they often use when they describe going from one administration to the next in terms of the U.S. position on the international uh, dimensions of climate is the word whiplash. And they just find it extremely difficult because of this back and forth from one administration to another. And that's what you're describing. Well, yes. And if you just look out one election to the midterm elections coming up, I think there's a significant chance you're going to see a majority of Republicans in the House of Representatives. Uh, And that's going to complicate the rest of the Biden administration. Let me finish with uh, uh, this question. Uh, And stepping back from all of this, John, to uh, think about something which has not been going back and forth, which seems to be continuous and gradually increasing. And that's the importance given to the problem of climate change by young people. And I'm not referring exclusively to the youth movements in Europe and the United States that were quite prominent in 2019, but in general, I mean, I think, obviously when I went to primary school and high school, the the phrase climate change didn't go up. I think when my kids went to primary school and high school, I'm not so sure it came up. But when people go to primary and high school today, climate change is a big issue. And young people, according to the surveys, uh, take climate change much more seriously than older people. A big question in my mind, and maybe you can comment on this, is whether that's a cohort effect or an age effect. Are they going to become more conservative, as many people do, as they get older? Or does this mean that the attention given to climate change is going to continue to grow and grow and grow uh, as a result of this, uh, the, the youth. What do you think? I think it'll continue to grow. And I've been seeing that f- from the vantage point of a board member of the Alliance for Market Solutions, which is a, an NGO in Washington dedicated to promoting a national carbon tax mm-hmm. as, a, as a replacement for federal regulations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we focus on conservatives and Republicans in Congress. And we find that the younger members are much more interested in this issue, much mm-hmm. more likely to be wanting to engage in it. Uh, and even in my home state of Indiana, we have both of our uh, senators who are relatively young senators in the uh, seniority of the of the Republican side in the Senate. They're mm-hmm. both very strong advocates of a national carbon tax. So anyway, I'm saying that the nature of the debate may change between mm-hmm. how you address climate change, not whether you address climate change. That's interesting and, and potentially very important. And that's what we've seen with 
other policy debates in the past, such as with uh, acid rain, that it involved it evolved from is it a problem to be addressed to how are we going to address it, uh, and that, that that turned out to be the 1990 Clean Air Act amendments from the George H.W. Bush administration, and we'll probably see a similar evolution you're saying here. Exactly. So um, with that, John, I want to thank you again for taking time to join us today. We could have gone on, as far as I'm concerned, for an hour or two hours, but this has been delightful from my perspective, at least. And the same sentiment is here. Thank you so much, Rob. Thanks again to our guest today, John Graham, professor and former dean of the O'Neill School of Public and Environmental Affairs at Indiana University, an important contributor to public policy from his former vantage inside the White House. Please join us for the next episode of Environmental Insights, Conversations on Policy and Practice from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stevens. Thanks for listening. Environmental Insights is a production from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. For more information on our research, events, and programming, visit our website, www.heap.hks.harvard.edu.